Exodus 20, uh, we didn't mean to have this incredibly consequential passage uh, be the first uh, passage that we would read here, but um, it is how the Lord would have it to be. So Exodus 20, and I will read um, verse 1 through 21. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities on the, of the fathers, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you should do your labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, not you or your son or your daughter, male servant, female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet on the mountain and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, this is an incredibly consequential passage. It, it, it really frames up the whole rest of the Bible. We can't understand the Bible without this passage and what begins after the giving of this passage. We can't understand the nature of God without this passage. In fact, without this passage, there wouldn't be what we call Western civilization. It's an incredibly fundamental passage of scripture. I'll explain what I mean by that here in a minute. But it gives us the foundation of law and it helps us understand the very nature of God. So three things I wanna look with you uh, on this historic day here in our, our new building. First of all, the nature of the law. Secondly, the way of the law. And then finally, obedience to the law. Let's look at the nature of the law. Look at verse one. Look how God begins this passage. It says, God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord. 
the, the, whenever you see the capital L-O-R-D there, it's, it's a reference to the personal name of God. The, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord who's revealed himself to you. I am God who's made himself known to you. I am the Lord your God. And I, the one who you're to know and I'm to know you and you're to know me. I, this Lord, have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you've been with us as we've been studying the book of Exodus, we've been saying that this whole book tells the story about how God has taken the Hebrew people and he's freed them from captivity in the land of Egypt and he's bringing them out of that slavery in Egypt, slavery to Pharaoh, and he's freeing them to the worship of the Lord, freeing them to the worship of Yahweh. You could say it this way. The book of Exodus is about the people going from the service of Pharaoh to the service and worship of the Lord, the true and living God. And as we've been doing this, we've been looking at how God has been freeing them, freeing them. Now, Exodus 14 that we looked at a few weeks ago is kind of the pivotal moment. Before Exodus 14, in the whole Bible, the way that God reveals himself is, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. After Exodus 14, the way that God now reveals himself is, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the kind of God who is a savior. I am the kind of God who has freed you. That's, that's fundamentally who I am. I am the God who saves. And this, this is so important. Now God has take, is taking this people and he's forming them. He's forming them to be a people of his own possession, a people that his way and his truth and his law and his glory will be manifest through, but he's taking them out of Egypt. For hundreds of years, they'd been in Egypt and they understood Egyptian law and Egyptian customs. They lived in an Egyptian way. They had an Egyptian morality. They had an Egyptian code of ethics. And now God is bringing them out of Egypt and forming them to be a new kind of people a people with new customs, a people with a new culture, with new traditions, and of course with a new set of laws, a new way of morality, a new ethical code. God was, if you will, distinctifying this people, making them a new kind of people. Again, as I said, a people of his own possession. And this distinctifyingness was incredibly powerful. You know, something I think a lot of people don't understand the second zealot revolt, AD 130, okay? So the, the, in the time of Jesus' first century, there was the zealots. You read about them in the New Testament. And they actually had this massive revolt against the Roman world. They thought that we need to be freed from the Romans. Let's fight against the Romans. We can't be satisfied as long as we're under Roman rule. And so they, they, they took up arms against the Romans. They, they attacked the Romans. And the Romans, of course, as Romans did back in those days, totally dominated them. And they, they put down this revolt. And, and in response to the revolt, they actually tore down the temple. And the thought of the Romans was, if they don't have this sacrificial system, if we can kind of break apart some of their customs, this this central architectural structure that's so important to them, if we can tear this down, they will become more Romanized. They, they will become more a part of us. They won't be so distinct, but it didn't work. The people kept their distinctiveness. And so about 60 years later, there was another revolt and the people revolted again and tried to get rid of the Roman reign over them. It was the second zealot revolt in AD 130. And this time it was even worse. The, the Romans were like, we're gonna get rid of all of these zealots 
And what we're going to do, and if you don't realize this from world history, this is an incredibly important fact in world history. The Romans said, what we are going to do, we're not just going to get rid of their temple, we're going to take them away from the land. No Jewish people lived in what we know as the Holy Land from 130 AD until about the 1870s, okay? And what the Romans did was they scattered them all over the world so that they would become minority groups in all of these different places all over the Roman world so that they wouldn't have kind of a centralized formational structure so that they would de-distinctivize them, that they would become more Roman. They would get rid of their kind of Jewish ethos, if you will, and become like the Roman world. Only the problem was, I mean, I'm talking 130 to 1870s, and really it wasn't until the 1940s. From from 130 until the 1940s, Jewish people were always a minority group, always a minority group, wherever they were, and yet the plan didn't work. They didn't get distinctivized. They, 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 they kept their distinctiveness. The, these laws and these customs and these rituals that God had set in place in the old covenant, in the old Testament were so profound. They were so strong. They formed this people that was able to survive 800, 1800 years of minority treatment. It's an incredibly powerful thing that the Lord is doing here. And of course, this same ethical code grew and developed into what we now know as a Judeo-Christian system of ethics and laws and human rights. And this is why I said, without this list, you don't have what we know as Western civilization. This understanding of an ethical code or an ethical law, the Judeo-Christian system of ethics and human rights built on the back of that was built what we know as the Western world. And a lot of people have been writing about this recently. Joseph Heinrich, who is a professor at Harvard University, he's an anthropologist, he's an atheist. He's not a Christian. He's not a believer in God of any sort. But he's been studying this impact of Christianity or this kind of Judeo-Christian ethical impact on the way people have understood law and human rights and ethics and morality, obviously particularly in the West. And he joins thinkers like Charles Taylor and Alastair McIntyre to say that what we know as right and wrong or good and bad, what, how we understand the world to be didn't just happen. The, the, the ways of the world, the, the founding father says that, that these uh, are, you know, are, are profound, they're self-evident. Basically, these current thinkers are saying they may not be as self-evident as we assume that they are. When America went into Afghanistan and Iraq in the early part of the 20th century, we went in there and we established democracies. And and our assumption was, right, and this is the way people in the West think, our assumption was democracy, individual freedom, right, individual dignity, right, these are human ideas. They're not Western ideas, they're human ideas. They're ideas that all humans would celebrate, okay? And so we went into these countries and said, the problem is there's an evil dictator. Let's give these people some room and some space and they establish a democracy and everyone there will like it and and the democracy will work and it'll go forward. And of course, if you've lived in the past 20 years, you know that that was a horribly, you know, failed experiment. It didn't work. It didn't work at all. Why? And this is what these 
people like Joseph Heinrich are looking at. They're like, why? (laughs) These things are self-evident, right? Human freedom is self-evident. Individual dignity is self-evident, right? And what they're discovering is that actually, no, these aren't self-evident or human ideas. They're actually Western Christian ideas. This, This whole superstructure of ethics and morality that we have just taken for granted because we've always lived within it was built on the back of this kind of ethical superstructure that is begun to be laid out right here in this scene. (laughs) Don't you see how important this is? Don't you see how important this is to like how all of us actually understand the world, even if you're not a Christian, how all of us understand ethics, morality, or even human rights. That's why I said without Exodus 20, you, you wouldn't have Western civilization. The value on individual freedom and human dignity and human rights, these are Christian ideas. They have given foundation to the world that we live in. Now, what's so interesting about this current moment is that a secular person will critique Christians for not believing in human rights, Right? I say, well, you don't believe in human rights because you have a biblical understanding of sexual ethics, or for example, or something like that. Even though it was the Christian ethic or the Judeo-Christian ethic that gave the world an understanding of human rights to start with. Or a secular person might critique a Christian for not celebrating someone's unique expression when it actually is a Christian idea that individuals have a sense of individual dignity. The, The secular world has found itself from the foundation of a Judeo-Christian ethical superstructure critiquing the very values of Christianity or of revealed truth that we see in the Jewish and the Christian scriptures. I remember when I was in college, um, I I was dating a girl and we we had this idea one night that we were going to go to a gas station and buy a bunch of snacks and food, like gas station snacks, and we were going to take them. And whenever we saw a homeless person, we were going to, you know, pass out the snacks that we had just bought. It was a really fun night and we had fun. Now, while we were on this date, I guess is what you would call it, uh, while we were on this date, um, she kind of started like self-righteously saying, you know, my parents never do anything like this for the poor. Kind of self-righteously condemning her parents while we were going out and, you know, so faithfully serving the poor by handing them, you know, sugar-packed gas station snacks. Anyway, the, the interesting thing about that is that her father paid for the very gas card that we used to buy the snacks. But that is kind of the way that the Western world now operates, where people critique the very Christianity that actually gave us this understanding of ethics and human rights that we now all flourish from within. This uh, passage here, it, it, it helps us understand the foundation of these ideas. And what anthropologists and Sociologists like Joseph Heinrich, again, not Christian, atheistic professor at Harvard University, what they've been saying is that when you remove, and there's a lot of data to back this up, when you remove the Christian distinctiveness from 
the Christian ethical system, the ethical system begins to fall apart. So when you remove things like revealed law, like we believe that this law has come from God, or when you, when you remove things like a belief in judgment, heaven, hell, when you remove stories like forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, when you remove these things, the ethical superstructure that has been built on top of Christianity begins to fall apart. And what these anthropologists and sociologists are worried about is the West returning to a pre-Christian tribal identity. We're, we're fundamentally, we're not subject to a, a larger law or a larger judgment, but only our tribal law or our tribal judgment. In a tribal identity, it doesn't matter if someone's lying or doing horrible things as long as they're of your tribe. Right? As long as they're of your tribe, that's all that matters because there is no broader truth. There is no ultimate judgment. All that matters is tribal strength. That's the way the world worked in the West before Christianity. It's actually the way a lot of the world still works today. And what Heinrich and others are saying, that is the destiny of the West uh, in a collapsing world of Christianity. All this to say, the point I'm trying to make here, I just want you to understand how important what we just read was. It, it, it not only is foundational for understanding the Lord, everything in our whole life that we know in terms of ethics and morality starts to grow and be built out by what God reveals here. And, and there's three things that are happening that you have to have in order to really have a flourishing and free society. And the first is you have to have a lawgiver, an agreed upon lawgiver, right? So we see the lawgiver here. And he's a good lawgiver. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am a saving God who loves you, who particularly is doing this kindness and grace to you. Number two, you need laws. And we're going to look at these laws. And they're more than just laws. These aren't just like rules. They're really paradigms to understand all of life. And then the third thing, there has to be a consequence. Of course, we see this in this passage, this thunder and flashes of lightning, there had to be someone stronger than humanity to keep us accountable to this law that was given. All three of those things must be in place for the law to work, for a society to work. There had to be a lawgiver, there has to be a recognized law, and there has to be a consequence for when that law is broken. You know, the reason, if you go to the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., and you look at it, if you go there, you can go there right now, and, and in the... Uh, Pe uh, the pedestal or the pediment, the little triangle on the top of the columns, in the very center of that pediment is Moses holding the Ten Commandments. And the reason that that image is there is because we recognize this. We recognize this in the West, the importance of this moment on our society today. So we've looked at the nature of the law. Second, and this is everything I'm about to say here is like could be its own individual sermon, but I don't have time to give you 10 sermons today. Even though I want to. We're in the new building now. You got the cushy seats? How about the cushy seats? So, yeah, yeah. So maybe I will. Maybe I will. So settle in, guys. But No, I'm going to go very quickly through this. But what I want you to see is that all 10 of these commandments, these laws, as it says here in Exodus 20, these words of God, they're not just laws. They're not, again, they're not just rules. They're paradigms for life. And that's how I want to present this. So the first paradigm you see here is the paradigm of worship. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but it is true. You are a worshiper. 
You will worship something. You are made to worship. God designed you to worship him. Now, you may not worship him, but if you don't worship him, you will find yourself worshiping something. David Foster Wallace, who a secular author, wrote in the late 90s, early 20th century, but his writing has been very helpful for me. Um, He sadly took his own life about 15 years ago, but he he writes this, and, and this is incredibly helpful. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life from, then you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And then he says this. This is so helpful. He said, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. And this is, I hope that even David Foster Wallace would wake someone up here right now that may have found yourself into one of these worship modes. They're unconscious. There are default settings. They're the kind of worship that we just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hungs along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone in the center of all creation the paradigm of worship. You're going to worship something. The question is who or what are you worshiping? And really all of these other commands stem from this one. You know, Martin Luther famously said, if you've broken any of the commands, you've already broken the first. All of these commands, these ways of God, they, they come down to belief and love and worship of God. If you're, if you're worshiping the Lord, if your heart is for the Lord, then the commands of God are easy. You know, it's also been said that you know, there's like four vertical commands, and we'll look at that, and I want to edit that a little bit, and six horizontal commands, four commands in terms of how we deal with God, six commands in terms of how we deal with others, but really they're all vertical. They, they all stem from worship. If we know God and love God and worship God, then that's kind of it. Then we will delight in obeying his commands. So the first is the paradigm of worship. The second is the paradigm of idolatry. Again, all of these I wish I could say more on. You shall not make any graven image. Now, uh, again, a lot of us read this one. I remember for years I read this one. It said, check, you know, easy. I've never been tempted to carve idols. It's not something I do a lot of. But that's actually not really the essence of this command. 
there's two kind of things that I think this, this can manifest or this command can manifest in our heart, at least disobedience, this two ways that disobedience can manifest itself. The first is, is I think what David Foster Wallace was talking about. When we take something that isn't actually a deity or is not labeled a deity, but call it a deity or act like it's a deity, money, beauty, intellect, for these things to become the primary focus of our lives. Tim Keller has famously said, an idol is anything other than God that has become ultimate in your life. Whatever it is, it's ultimate. That's, that, that becomes our, our source of comfort and strength, which is why people worship idols. But the next way that this manifests, and I think this is a little more, again, to use a David Foster Wallace word, insidious. Exodus 32, we're going to look at this actually next week. Moses is away from the people. He's up on the mountain meeting with the Lord. And they're in the wilderness. And so what do you do when you're in the wilderness and you're scared? What do we do? We need something to worship. We need something to reassure ourselves. That's why we worship all these other things. That's why you worship money if money's what you worship. Okay, I've got, I still got $3 million in the bank. I'm good. You know, we, that's, that's what those things do. And so that's what the people were doing. They said, okay, I want to, I, I need something to worship. And so they carved a calf, right? They had Aaron carve this calf. And it says, as long as we have this idol that we can worship, it will give us this sense of strength here in the wilderness. Now, you know this story, and they, they, they worship the calf. They threw a great feast to the calf. You probably have heard this story before. Here's what you might not have picked up on when you read this story. You know what they named the calf? What did they name the calf? They named the calf Yahweh. They, they, they formed this calf, even though God had said, don't do this, just here in Exodus 20. And then they named the calf Yahweh. They said, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to worship Yahweh. Only it wasn't actually Yahweh. We know it couldn't have been Yahweh that they were worshiping because Yahweh had just said, don't ever do this. This, I think, is, is what so much of the idolatry that exists in the United States, at least right now. We say that we're worshiping Jesus, but we've just named something Jesus that isn't actually Jesus. We've named a form of worship or lifestyle Jesus that isn't actually what Jesus has revealed. And there's so many of these. I wish I could get into them, but there's a lot of counterfeit Jesuses out there or counterfeit gospels out there. What God is saying here is, no, don't, don't, don't make any forms of me. Here's what you do. Here's how you know you're worshiping me. Follow what I've revealed. Stick to what I've revealed. That's how you know you're worshiping me. You don't need a form. You don't need an image. You need my word. That's the paradigm of idolatry. The third is the paradigm of identity. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, again, this is another one. I thought that what this meant when I was a kid was, you know, don't say these two cuss words. You're not supposed to, like the really bad ones, you know. Don't say these things. Don't, don't, I thought what it was saying is don't use the name of the Lord in a profane way. That's not really what this command is all about. Now, even though you shouldn't do that. But what it is saying is don't take the name of the Lord in, in, a, in an unworthy way, in a profane way. Meaning, don't call yourself a Christian. Don't call yourself of the people of God if you're not living according to the word of God. It's similar to the warning that we talk about when we take the Lord's Supper. Don't, don't take this in an unworthy way. Don't, don't, don't take this sacred meal that's so meaningful 
to people who know and love the Lord, don't just take it on in a callous or light way. Don't, don't, if you're not a Christian, don't call yourself a Christian. Don't take the name of the Lord in a profane way or in a light way. Don't take it in vain. Fourth command, fourth paradigm is the paradigm of rhythm. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Your life needs rhythm. It's actually the thing that keeps you from becoming an idolater. Again, these, these first four commands, as we talk about, they're, they're vertical in a sense that these are the things. If you start having idols that you call the Lord, if you, if you don't respect the name of the Lord and what it means to call yourself a follower of the Lord, if you won't rest and stop and worship, you'll, you'll, you'll slip into idolatry. You'll, you'll slip into the default setting, to use David Foster Wallace's word. You'll, you'll slip into the worship of something else. So stop, worship, create that rhythm in your life. You know, there's 39 Sabbath commands in the Old Testament. Now, you might think of that, I'd be like, man, that's a little overkill. I mean, do you really need 39 ways, 39 times you have to say, don't work on the Sabbath? 39 ways to say, don't work on the Sabbath. And you know what? You know what I think the answer is? Yes. You ever, you ever try to stop working for a whole day? You ever try to, like, not give yourself over to materialism for a day? You ever take a day and actually rest and worship? You ever take that? You ever know how hard that is to do? You know what you probably need? 39 commands or more to actually gun down and and focus on the Lord. It's the paradigm of rhythm. Do you have a rhythm where you can actually say, my stuff doesn't come from my work. My worth doesn't come from my comfort or my activities. My worth comes from the Lord. And that's what we're going to focus on today. It's the paradigm of rhythm. The next, now this one, again, has been called the first of the horizontal commands. It's the paradigm of generations. Honor your father and mother. But it's, it's really not a horizontal command completely. It, I think it's, it's a bridge. It's kind of vertical. It's kind of horizontal. I used to think this one said, honor your father and mother Obey your parents and you'll live a long life, right? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land, right? I said, well, you know, if you honor your father and mother, you'll live a long life. Now that may be true, right? You should obey your parents. Kids, obey your parents. You'll probably live longer. But that's not actually what this command is saying. It's what's happening here is God is saying, I am giving you this land, This land is my blessing. This land is where you will thrive. This land is where you'll have great comfort. You'll establish yourself as a people. And how are you going to keep the land? How are you going to stay under the blessing of God? It's when the fathers and mothers worship the Lord and know the Lord, and when they teach their children to worship the Lord and know the Lord. There's a a two-way emphasis in this command. Deuteronomy 6 where the law is repeated, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's the same kind of idea, the Shema, the great law of Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the very next statement, the very next idea is, and teach the words of God to your kids. Teach all this to your kids. Make sure that your kids know this. How will the blessing of God stay on the people of Israel? It's when one generation passes off their faith to the next. It's when the fathers and the mothers are faithful to teach the law and the way of God to the next generation when the children are faithful to listen. Six is the paradigm of life. You shall not murder. You shall have respect for human life. Every life is sacred. Every life should not be taken lightly. And again, all of these 
All of these commands, they're, they're paradigms that, that create a society that can actually flourish. No society can flourish that doesn't value human life. Now you might be thinking, hold on, okay, this is good. I, I've been wanting to ask you about capital punishment. I've been wanting to ask you about war. And those are good questions, but I don't have time to get to those today, but the Bible speaks to those, but we are going to get to those in the sermon talkback tomorrow. So you can listen to the sermon talkback this week. The seventh paradigm is the paradigm of covenant or promise. You shall not commit adultery. Can you keep a promise? Again, no society can thrive that doesn't value the idea of promise or covenant or commitment. And of course, the most fundamental promise or covenant or commitment is the covenant of marriage and family. (laughs) You have a society of people that can honor a covenant made between husband and wife. And again, all of these, I want to say this, all of these are vertical in a sense. I think of John, what John says in 1 John 4. If you say you can't love your brother, this earthly covenant, this earthly relationship between brothers, if you say you can't love your brother who you can see, then you can't love God who you can't see. The, the way that we operate within these horizontal relationships is evidence of our vertical love for the Lord. The eighth word, or the eighth command, or the eighth paradigm is the paradigm of ownership. You shall not steal. You must respect your neighbor's possessions even if you don't respect your neighbor, right? (laughs) Again, a society cannot function without this idea, respect for people's property. The ninth paradigm is the paradigm of truth. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, this this kind of pushes us in two directions. The the first is just a, a understanding of truth, do we live in a world with truth? Like this is true and this is not true. Can we, can we recognize this? Even if it cuts against my tribe, even if my tribe is not served by this truth, am I still willing to believe that there is a God and that there is a truth? And there, there must be in order for society to flourish. It, it, it points in the direction of truth, but it also points into this um, direction of bearing witness. It's, it's this idea of a system of law or system of the courts. In order to have a flourishing society, some system somewhere has to hold the idea of truth or justice in place. Do not dishonor that system. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Tell what is true. That's how righteousness can be upheld. And then the 10th word, and this is the tough one. If 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 you're killing it so far, this is, the, this is the trump card, okay? It's the paradigm of the heart. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. Here's where the law takes a dramatic turn. You know, the eight middle commands, they're kind of action-oriented, right? Like committing adultery, murdering, stealing, right? These include action, right? There's some act that you do to do these things. The first and the last command are only heart. How do you, how do you outwardly know if you have another God before God, right? Now, eventually, you know, because you'll disobey one of the action commands, right? But that can happen in your heart long before those commands are actually broken. The same thing with covetousness, right? 
It's not, obviously, if you start coveting your neighbor's wife, you might end up having adultery, but, but adultery actually is a separate command. This command is actually striking to what happens before that, which is the matter of the heart. And this, this is where the commands, this is where the law gets so hard. This is where obedience to the law, living by this, becomes impossible. And that, that's our third point, obedience to the law. Look at how this scene ends. It ends in this very dramatic way, and this is important. You, you can't, this list doesn't work without the end. Verse 18, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Earlier we said there's three things that have to be in place in order for society to flourish, in order for law to work. There has to be a lawgiver, a recognized lawgiver. There has to be the law itself, and there has to be a consequence. There has to be a consequence for breaking the law. And the message here in Exodus 20 is pretty clear. How does it begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here's the law, and then here's the end. There's thunder. There's flashes of lightning. I mean, the message is, a, is clear. Obey the law and be blessed. Disobey the law and be condemned. It's very clear. There is a law. There is a law. There's a lawgiver. There's a law. And there is condemnation for those who disobey. But the problem is, who can obey? I mean, that, that's the problem. Maybe you can obey the external law, right? Maybe you cannot steal. Maybe you cannot murder. But who, I mean, who, who would raise their hand and say, God has always been number one in my life. I've never put anything before God. Who would raise their hand and say, all of my desires have been right and proper toward my neighbor. I've never lusted wrongly. I've never, I've never coveted something that I shouldn't have coveted. I mean, who has the courage here today to say, yes, my heart is in line with the law. I am innocent according to this law. Paul in Romans 7 hits this same dilemma. If you've ever read Romans 7, it's kind of a confusing passage, but this is what is happening to Paul. Turn with me to Romans 7, 7. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What's Paul saying here? The commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Here's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I read the Ten Commandments and I thought to myself, I didn't, I haven't stolen I remember the Sabbath. I haven't murdered anybody. The law's promising life. The law's promising justification. Look at me. I'm Paul. I mean, he was a Pharisee. I'm glad I'm not like all those other people that do steal and that do lie and that do murder. Not me. I'm Paul. But what does he say? He says, then I read the 10th command. I read the whole covet command. 
He said, I thought I was alive. And then I read the covet command. It really sunk home. And I realized, wait a second, my desires aren't always right. I do have lust in my heart. I am jealous when other people have good things happen to them and bad things happen to me. I do wish I was as rich as that guy is. Oh my gosh. And all of a sudden, the law, he says, comes alive and kills him. I love the language here. It's like the 10th commandment. You thought you made it through. It's like this obstacle course. You thought you made it through all the 10 commandments, and then the 10th one comes and just kills you. That's what Paul's saying. He said, the law slew me. The law put me to death. I couldn't do it. I couldn't obey it. I couldn't follow it. You know, John Calvin says there's three purposes of the law. The first is it gives order to society. We've been talking about that. The second is it shows the character of God. It helps us to know God, but the third is that it, it crushes us. It, it bids us because we can't do it. We can't justify ourselves. It bids us to seek after the grace of God. Augustine said, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirement and become wearied and weak under it to know how to ask for the help of grace. The law, the law reveals to us over and over and over again how holy God is and how unholy we are. Now, in light of that, I understand the Hebrew people's, what they do at the end of this passage. If the law is really there and it's really true and there's God and he is going to hold us accountable to the, the law and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's fire, if that's true, then I get the Hebrew people's response. Don't let God see me, right? Don't let God speak to me lest I die. Moses, you can keep talking to me because we know you're sinful too, but don't let God speak to me. I get with the Hebrew people. I get how they respond. That's how I would respond, right? I mean, if you knew that God knew your heart, and he does, how would you respond? I would respond like the Hebrew people. <laughs> Don't let her talk to me. <laughs> I know I'm done. The law rose up and killed me. What I don't understand, what, the question you should be asking of this text, I get what the Hebrew people are doing here, but what is Moses doing? What, what's wrong with Moses? Because the passage ends with God over there, the people are running away from him, but Moses is walking toward the fiery mountain. <laughs> Moses is walking into the fire of God. The question you should be asking is, what is the, who does Moses think that he is? Because we know Moses is not innocent. I mean, murder, I mean, that's a big one. Moses has done that. There's all these times where Moses doubts God. There's all these times where Moses um, is deceptive, where, where he's faithless. I mean, like Moses is not perfect here. How does Moses walk to where God is? And I think the answer comes in Hebrews eleven twenty six. We've looked at this passage a few weeks ago. We haven't looked at it recently, but it's talking about Moses. It's talking about his faith. And he says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, what does this mean? And here's what I think it means. Now, Moses didn't have the same revelation that we have. He didn't have the Gospels. But, but what this is saying, I believe, is that somehow Moses knew. God is sending me, Moses, to go and redeem these people, to save them, to call them out of Egypt. But God will, in the same way, send a redeemer for me to call me out of my bondage, to save me from my sin, to save me from my death. 
I believe Moses believed that. That's how he walks into the conference. That's how he meets with God. He's, he, he's not standing there based on his righteousness. He must have a faith in some redeemer that God would send on his behalf. And of course, God has sent such a redeemer on Moses' behalf. And he sent the same redeemer on your behalf and my behalf. His own son, Jesus, who was holy, <laughs> who could approach God, who could approach the throne of God always because Jesus always obeyed outwardly and inwardly. Yet for our sake, for our sake, for the sake of our sins, because he loved us, he walked into the fire of God. He endured God's wrath. He endured the fire and the thunder and the lightning. He endured the penalty for all of our sin on the cross. He took on all of our idolatry all of our covetousness, all of our lives, all of our murder, all of our lust, all of our deception. He took on the consequences of all of our sin. He endured the fiery wrath of God so that now in him, if you are in Christ, you can approach God forgiven, free, at peace with God in the same way that Moses did. Moses didn't approach God because, of, because he was so righteous. He approached God because he had a great redeemer. And if you look to Jesus through repentance and faith, that you have a great redeemer. Paul ends the section in Romans 7 that I just mentioned. You know how he ends it? He says, man, covetousness rose up and killed me, he says. And then he says, wretched man that I am. He's realizing how sinful he really is, how, how he doesn't have a standing before God. He's this wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin? And then I can almost hear him exhale. He goes, oh. Oh. the relief of grace. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you breathed that Relief of grace. Have you believed that God has been so gracious to you? You know, until you've done that, like I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, until you've done that, if you're trying to justify yourself by wealth, like David Foster Wallace says, it'll never be enough, you'll always be anxious. Or power, you'll always be anxious. Or righteousness, you'll always be a fraud. You'll always have to hide because you know what's going on inside your heart and so does God. Don't you see how much you need a redeemer? And the good news I have for you is that such a redeemer has come who is always pure and always right and always holy and loved you enough to take on your sinful heart and give you his pure heart. And I love how what Paul says next in the beginning of chapter 8, he says, now for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. I get the Hebrew people. <laughs> I get the Hebrew people. Don't let him talk to me. Don't let him talk to me. He'll kill me if he knows. You know, some of y'all have heard me talk about this before. The, the, the great, the only moment that really matters in your life and in my life, the only moment that matters, the only moment that matters, okay? I mean, your wedding day, that's a good day. New building, great day. The only moment that really matters is the moment that we stand before the Lord. And I think about that moment, you know, the arena of arenas. You know, all the people of all time, they are gathered before God. And all of a sudden, your name is called. Your name is called by God. Just think about it, even in this room, if somebody called out your name, 
made you stand up and give an account. Some of y'all are starting to get nervous. Your name is called. Without Christ, without this Redeemer on my own, my reaction is the same as the Hebrew people. Don't let him talk. Don't, don't let him talk to me. Don't let him see me. But in Christ, because of the perfect righteousness and completed work of Christ on the cross that paid for all my sins, and so now in Jesus I am forgiven. You know, I love the words of Charles Wesley in the old hymn, And Can It Be? He says, No condemnation now I dread. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus. And all in him, his righteousness is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in his righteousness divine. And then I love this line. When that, your name is called, because of that, because of the perfect and completed, finished work of Jesus, bold, I approach the eternal throne of God. If you're in Christ, you can approach the place where God is, just like Moses, boldly. Bold, I approach the eternal throne of God and claim a crown through Christ, my own. Let's pray. Father, the law kills us. It kills us. It undoes us. Father, we can't live by this law. We can't even live by our own law. We can't even, we, we can't, literally cannot even be consistent with our own judgments. wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of sin? And we praise you now, Lord, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and made full atonement for our sin, who has rescued us from our sin, and has called us to live in him. He's now called us to live according to this law, and we can live according to it by the power of the Spirit, by the by the healing work of Jesus, we don't have to hide. We don't have to try to justify ourselves by it. We can live by it because we've already been set free. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead our church in that way now and that you would point our crooked hearts toward Jesus and make them straight. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe the good news of the love that you have shown us in Christ. As we now respond, I pray this in Jesus' name.